You know, Randy, there's three reasons why I'm really excited about this week's episode. Why is that, Lily? <laughs> well, the first is that we have Jeff Gotthelf as our guest. And we talked about so many things from the value of training, his journey from circus technician to UX UI leader, and now a product consultant, and all about sense and respond. Yeah, I absolutely loved this conversation. Jeff's got a great perspective on things. But um, what's the second reason? Because I got his name right on the first try. And according to him, that almost never happens. That was fantastic. And I bet I can guess the third reason. We actually got to do this one in person after Jeff and I both gave talks at the Turing Festival in Edinburgh. Yep, that's it. And it was really nice to hang out in person for a change. Um, but maybe we should do a proper intro this week. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's fix that. If you're new here, welcome. This is the product experience where every week we talk to brilliant people from the product community about what they know so that we can get better at what we do. I'm Randy Silver. And I'm Lily Smith. And let's not waste any more time. On to the chat. Uh, so welcome to the Product Experience Podcast, Jeff Got to Help. <laughs> did <laughs> I say that right? You did. You did. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's great to finally be here. So we know quite a lot about you because you're one of the, the kind of amazing people on the product scene that we're inspired by. But perhaps you could tell our audience a little bit more about where you're from and what you've been doing and how you got into product. Sure, absolutely. So um, I started my career in the original dot-com boom in the, in the late 90s. Um, after a failed career as a broke musician, um, I needed to figure out how to make some money. <laughs> and it turned out that in the late 90s, if you could spell HTML, you could, you could get a job. <laughs> and I could do more than spell it. I could actually write it at the time. And so I, um, I got a job doing graphic design and, and some front-end coding and I coding in quotes because it's markup it's not really certainly by today's standards it's not coding um and uh and so I spent some time doing that during the dot com days and then transitioned into a role in information architecture which then became UX uh, for me not not the job itself I'm not yeah, saying yeah. that I became UX no no don't kill me <laughs> uh, for me I transitioned from from information architecture to user experience and interaction design um, I started leading design teams in um, New York primarily, and what was super interesting is I was doing product work and design work and facing this challenge of building these collaborative cross-functional product and design teams that work in an agile environment. And what was opportunistic for me was that I had the opportunity to try to solve that problem. I had a good boss who provided a bit of a, a safe space for me mm. to experiment with process and ways of working. And the ideas that we came up with as a team then formed the basis for the content that became Lean UX. And so along with Josh Seiden, uh, we wrote Lean UX. And everything changed after that. Uh, people stopped asking me to do design work and product work so much. And they said, come and teach us this stuff that's in the book because we can't figure out. We've read the book, but making it happen um, at in the real world was really difficult for us. How do we get product design engineering to work together in a customer-centric way? And so I've spent – so that was like the first 10 years. And then I spent the last 10 years or so – working with organizations in a coaching and training in a workshop capacity, teaching them initially lean UX, um, modern product management, 
uh, the agile and design. And then these days it's, it's focused even more on business agility for the entire organization and then leadership as well. How do we, how do we get leaders to understand what it means to manage a customer centric, agile product organization? And alongside that, you've written another book and you've also started a publishing company. Yeah, I mean, you know, in my, my, spare, <laughs> my spare time. Uh, look, so yeah, so, so Josh and I wrote a second book called Sense and Respond, which was um, to be a bit tongue-in-cheek, but, but it's, the truth was the response to what we sensed from the feedback to Lean UX. Right. So Lean UX continues to be a very popular book. And if I was to sum up the last six and a half, seven years worth of feedback for Lean UX, it, it boils down to, yes, we want to work this way, but my boss won't let me work this way. Yeah. That's been, that's been the feedback overwhelmingly for, for the six, seven years that we've been talking about it. And so Josh and I saw that as an opportunity to write a book that would be a conversation for the bosses. Yeah. And Sense and Respond is that response. So it basically says, look, you're in the software business and running a software-based business is different. Your teams already want to work this way. So if you can create the kind of culture and environment that provides them with this opportunity, they will do great work. Why do you restrict it to software? Well, we don't. But we do make the case that regardless of the business that you're in today, that business, if you want that business to grow and scale and, and be successful on a global level, you, you have to be in the software business as well. So, yes, you sell banking products or you sell industrial air conditioning units or, or whatever it is, but the scale of that business can only be achieved with technology. And managing a technology-based business is different. And a lot of veteran executives today they're really excellent at running banks. They're really excellent at running manufacturing companies, mm. but they're not necessarily excellent at running a software shop. And the book is really designed to, t- to explain to them why that's different and how they need to adjust how they lead and manage to support this new way of, of working and product development. And how did you find it being uh, received by people in leadership roles and, and running businesses? Are they seeking this kind of content out or are you having to say, hey, over here, there's a different way of working? It's a, it's a really great question. I think it's, there's a mix of it. I think to some extent there are some enlightened executives who understand that the world around them has changed and that there's a better way of doing things. Well, I don't know that they've realized it's better, but that it's different. Yeah. Right? There's a different way and I don't know much about it and I'm going to seek this out. And we do get those folks who will read the book or, or will reach out. Sometimes we hear from um, HR leaders who are trying to develop the organization, especially the leadership of the organization, and they say, look, can you come in and have a conversation with them about business agility and digital transformation and these kinds of uh, buzzwords that they've heard about but they don't necessarily know what it is. However, I spent a significant amount of my time doing exactly what you said, which is, hey, there's something new to think about here. You guys should pay attention to this. Here's why this is important, you know, and whether that's through podcasts like this or articles or speeches at, at conferences or, or books or whatever it is, really trying to hit home that people need to pay attention. And it's a difficult message to sell, especially for folks who have been in a leadership role for a long time, 15, 20 or more years, mm. because – what we're essentially doing for them, and this is why they're, this is why it's a difficult message to, to hit home, is we're moving the goalposts for them. Mm. 
right? So for the last 15 or 20 years, they've had their sights set on a specific goal as, as a leader, as a manager, and they knew exactly how to get there. And now we're saying, look, the path has changed. The skills that you need to continue to be successful as a leader have changed, and you've got to change. And that's risky and that's scary. Yeah. You know, when, some, when someone's been eyeing a corner office in a particular title for 20 years, and now we've, we've moved it, not necessarily further away, but laterally. How much of that is about giving up control and trusting other people? Yeah, that's, a, that's, exact, that's spot on. That's, that's exactly what it's about. Because the, the school of thought that the leaders that have been in place for 15 or 20 years are coming from is based in manufacturing. And in manufacturing, we tell our people what to do. Right, make a car, make ten cars, make ten thousand cars, and their job is to execute on that as efficiently as possible. In a technology or software-driven organization, we're building systems, and the production of the system is not the definition of success anymore. It's the optimization of that system to create better customer outcomes is what we're looking for, and the people closest to the system have the most amount of information and they can make the best decisions. And so giving them that power to do that, giving, giving the staff the power to make decisions and to adjust course based on what they're learning is terrifying mm. for a lot of folks because, well, that used to be my job, right? I would t- if there was a reason to change course, I would tell them why and how. And now what's my job as a, as a leader, as a manager? It's, it's a really scary uh, proposition. And I think um, a lot of the product people that I talk to these days, you know, they're, they're all trying really hard to develop themselves and to understand more about what's the best way to develop products. But where they come up against challenges is a lot with, to do with the leadership in their businesses. So they're, you know, they're trying to do discovery and they're, they're trying to be agile and they're trying to kind of bring their teams together and empower them but they tend to have problems with the leadership team not understanding how they're trying to work. So, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult difficult place to be in, I guess. It is. And look, I think that, and there's, there's, the change manifests in a variety of different ways, in process, in ways of working, in empowerment, in language as well. And what I've found is that there is relatively little investment in professional development of leaders and executives. Mm. And they just don't take advantage of it or they don't find the time for it. They don't make the time for it. And so one of the things that I found to be extremely powerful is if we can understand the language that the leaders care about and we can translate the work that we do into language that they understand, it opens up the possibility for change more effectively. So if you're talking to a chief operations officer, a COO, right, what does that person care about? Well, they care about the, you know, the, the productivity of the staff, the utilization of the staff, the, the efficiency of the facilities that we're using or whatever it is. Okay, great. Let me tell you about how the work that I'm doing on automating this particular process affects efficiency and profitability because I know that's what you care about. You may not understand what we're doing to, for the automation portion of it, but this is how it impacts you. And so I think that if you can use the language – of the people that you're trying to influence, it's not a silver bullet, but you stand a better chance of, of influencing. Yeah. Speaking of language, yeah. so one of the defining features of the, the publishing company you've got is that your books are a little bit different than most business books. 
to be blunt, they're short. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from, and what's the the ethos around that? Yeah, it's, so, so we built Sense and Respond Press based on the methodology that we teach to build products and services and companies today. We, we dog-fooded the process. And so there was this uh, hypothesis that said, let me find it. So I had a hypothesis that said, look, let me find a, a topic that seems to resonate with my audience. So my audience on Twitter, LinkedIn, et cetera. Let me see which of my tweets are popular. Okay. And I, uh, a tweet that I had sent out about the reconciling the processes of lean, agile, and design thinking mm-hmm. resonated really well. And I said, okay, great. There's, some, there's a there there. Where do we go from here? What's the next level of investment that I need to put into this? And for me, it was um, a, an, a blog post. So I wrote 750 words on it. It did really well. In fact, up until very recently, it was the most well-read thing I'd ever written online, which is great. That's proof that there's traction. Yeah. Great. And after a conversation with my friend Christina Whitkey um, about self-publishing, I said, you know what? Maybe I can experiment with self-publishing and see if I can turn this into something that, having published two books with two separate publishers, maybe there's something I can do better on my own. And so I I turned the 750 words into 6,000 words, so increased level of investment based on evidence, right? Same thing we teach uh, product managers. And and that book did particularly well. And so so then that really raised the question of, is there something more to this here, right? Will people read shorter books? Yeah. And so we did uh, customer discovery. We, we created a hypothesis. We created personas. We went out and we did discovery. We talked to executives. We put the prototype, which was my lean versus agile versus design thinking book, into their hands. And overwhelmingly, the feedback was, hmm, I might actually read this, you know, as they kind of flipped through the pages and saw that it was 40 pages long. And so that created the hypothesis for Sense and Respond Press. We then, uh, Josh Seiden and I, decided that there, we believe that there's an opportunity here for a couple of things. One is to deliver tactical, practical information to busy executives in ways that they would actually consume. So if you hand somebody a copy of a business book, any business book that's 250 pages, 300 pages, the odds of them re- reading the whole thing and reading it to completion is, are pretty low. right? But you give them a 40-page book that has a little display on the front that says, it'll take you 45 minutes to read this. Turns out it stands a greater chance. So that's number one. Number two, we wanted to really present an opportunity for a lot of folks to open up uh, their first books. So there's a lot, there are a lot of people who would like to write a book, but writing 60,000 words feels like an insurmountable mountain, which I can totally relate to. So we asked them to write ten to 12,000 words. Yeah. Which, if we're talking about failed assumptions... The assumption that writing 12,000 words is, is easier than writing 60,000 words <laughs> is absolutely a false assumption. That's, that's certainly something we've learned in the last Any couple of 12, years. Any 12,000 words is fine. The right ones are right. hard. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Because 60,000, you can write all the words, <laughs> yeah. right? But at 12,000, you've really got to focus and you've really got to really hit things on the head very, very quickly. And we want to, to help folks really deliver their first book. And then third, we wanted to provide a platform to help people who may not normally have access to publishers or have the same kind of platform that we're privileged enough to have. And so we're trying to build as diverse a lineup of authors as we can over the last couple of years or so. We've got eight books published at this point, which is super interesting. There's uh, half a dozen more in production. And um, really, really proud of, of this particular 
uh, side business as we put together. And I think it's print on demand, isn't it? So you don't have a huge upfront investment in inventory. Exactly. And so, so again, de-risking the hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the least amount of effort we can put forward and still maintain a high-quality service here? We operate on the Amazon platform. Everything. So, so print, Kindle, and, and audiobook. It's, it's, on, mm-hmm. it's on Audible. And all of that is on demand. So there's no inventory. So we don't, we don't carry warehouse costs. So we don't carry inventory costs. I don't have to, to send books back to the warehouse if I don't sell them. It's just they just get produced when someone orders them. And, and there's a tremendous – like it, it's the, the, the ability for anyone to do that today is ridiculously simple. Yeah. It seems like such a simple idea to write a business book that you can read fairly quickly and – get some actionable insights from. I can't believe that no one else has done it. <laughs> I mean, look, to, to be perfectly fair, I mean, you know, again, coming back to Christina Whitkey, she, for me, she was a real source of inspiration here right. because of, of her book, Radical Focus, and then the other books that she's written as well. She's done a tremendous job of writing these very tactical, practical they're business books. I mean, they might be business fiction in, in some capacity. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, Radical Focus is business fiction. It's, a, it's, a, it's like, you know, the, the five dysfunctions of a team, right? It's, it's a story that, that depicts the process. Um, but it's a business book at the end of the day. And to me, that was, that was the real inspiration there to, to, to learn from. I just love the idea that telling uh, the story of a team that operates well is inherently business fiction. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So uh, that that leads into a a good question. So you do a lot of corporate training. You've talked a a bit about that. Can a company ever really change? Um, Look, I think the answer is yes. Um, I think it depends on the size of the company, and I think it depends on the leadership of the organization. That's really what it comes down to. I think that, that we can make superficial changes. I think we can make tactical changes. But if we really want to make long-term, meaningful, cultural changes, the size of the company matters. It becomes increasingly more difficult the bigger the company. And the leadership of the organization has to matter. We have to model that the behavior that we want to see top-down. And so the most successful engagements that I do are the ones where I work with both the teams and the leaders at the same time. So I'm doing you know, tactical coaching and training with the product development teams and then I do coaching with the executives to talk about, well, what does this mean for you? And how is this going to be different for you? And how do you interact with your teams in a way that allows them to work this way? And in those situations, we stand the greatest chance of having an impact. But the thing that I've seen as uh, an anti-pattern that inevitably underscores whether or not an organization succeeds or not is their incentives mm. and their performance management system. And so... You know, I've worked with many, many large organizations who have spent lots and lots of time and money and effort on transformation, agile implementations, uh, digital transfer, you know, all of these kind of buzzwordy things. And some of them have done really great work at that level in, 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 in creating the facilities and, and the training and the vocabulary and all these things. But the thing they always leave behind is the incentives and the performance management system. So what do you get rewarded? If I'm going to ask you to work differently, I can't reward you for the old way of working. I can't measure you on the old criteria of what it meant to do good work before we did this transformation. And again, most organizations either leave this for last or don't deal with it at all. And it causes tremendous friction because Mm. I'm asking you to work one way and I'm paying you to work a different way and, and it breaks. So is this where the difference between working from outputs over 
outcomes comes like because you're you're kind of measured by output in the old way and then the new way measured by outcome exactly that's exactly right so managing the outputs is easy it's binary yeah right and so it's easy to measure did you ship the app did you build the feature did you launch the service yes we did no we didn't i reward you for doing it i don't reward you for not doing it basically right but but if you manage the outcomes which is a change in behavior we have a spectrum of success there right and so for example if i say if i say listen i need you to increase retention by 50 percent, okay and now i'm going to trust you and empower you to go figure out how to do that and you come back to me after three months or six months and you say, look, uh, we increased retention by 38%. Is that good? Is that bad? <laughs> do, do I reward you? Do I fire you? You, you know, I mean, you know, if you crush the 50% number, then it's binary. Mm-hmm. But the reality of that being such a, such a black or white thing is rare. Generally yeah. speaking, we're going to give you a bit of a stretch goal to hit. And you're going to get close if it's an attainable and a reasonable Measure And so, yes, it becomes a much different conversation, right, because we've got to continue to iterate towards that number or, or decide that we're not going to do that anymore. Mm. Do you have any examples, and I'm not sure if you can share this or not, of a company that really has changed? It's gone from a very old school command and control type culture to one around empowerment and trust and collaboration. Yeah, and look, so while no, no organization is perfect and we're dealing with a lot of legacy stuff, it's interesting. There are at least two case studies um, that I would point to. One is in Sense and Respond and one is in Lean UX, the second edition of Lean UX. And interestingly enough, both of these companies are in the automotive space. They're not car manufacturers, but they are in, in the automotive space. So one company that I would call attention to is, uh, in the UK is a company called Auto Trader UK. Um, Auto Trader is super interesting. They have a massive amount of market share in the UK, but 40 years ago, and even 20 years ago, they were a print publication, basically classified ads for selling cars. And in the last 20 years or so, they've transformed into a software company that not only delivers classified ads for cars, but but has supporting services for dealerships and car manufacturers and so forth. And they have worked to create this continuous learning culture, this continuous deployment culture, this agile culture that empowers their teams to achieve specific outcomes. So that's one organization that I think, uh, and, and, and again, not, not only, what's, what's really interesting, I think here, is that at their height as a print publication, and again, doing really well in the marketplace overall, um, they had 4,000 employees. And today, I don't know where they stand today. A couple of years ago, they were right around the 1,000 mark and doing way more business than they ever were as a print publication. Super interesting uh, statistic there. So that's one. Uh, then the other one is CarMax. CarMax in the U.S. Um, CarMax is the largest used car dealer in the world. Um, they're a Fortune 50 company. They uh, really have created, the, if you've ever seen one in the United States, they're the the lots where they mm-hmm. use cars, hundreds and hundreds of cars. It's, it's a very efficient process. The digital team there has created the kind of experience that facilitates the car purchasing process to be as, as easy as possible and as quick as possible. Um, they want to make sure that you get into the right car at the right price, that you're financed for it, et cetera. And they have built the kind of organization that senses and responds on a regular basis. They've got test stores. They're always in communication with the, with the brick-and-mortar locations and the digital teams. And it's, it's been a really interesting organization to watch as they recognize that the technological side of things 
can truly facilitate the physical side of the experience as well. And so that's another organization that does things really well. So your book is, is or your Sense and Respond press book is Agile versus Lean versus Design Thinking. What's, what's the answer? <laughs> Which one is it? Yeah. Um, so first of all, the answer is I should not, in, in hindsight, and I can still do it because we don't have any inventory, it's print on demand, right? Um, but um, but the, in hindsight, it should have been lean and agile and design thinking, not versus, right? Okay, right. Versus, you know, and it's interesting, I, and I, I, I wonder if we did an A-B test, which would sell more, uh, right? And the nice thing is you have the opportunity to I do have to the opportunity it. to do that, which is true. <laughs> I would actually guess that the confrontational one would actually sell more, yeah, right? The one that, that sure. pits them against each other. People would be like, I want to read this one. But, but in reality, um, the book really is about lean and agile and design thinking. And the answer is really, it's, it's the principles over the processes. I think that if you look dogmatically at lean, and, and when I say lean, I really mean lean startup and lean startup in the enterprise specifically. There's hints of lean manufacturing there, but generally speaking, it's, it's lean startup in the enterprise. Um, if you try to layer the, the processes of lean startup design thinking and agile on top of each other, there's always going to be disconnects. Again, the vocabularies, the cadences, the, the goals are going to be slightly different and it always creates that bit of friction. But if you look at the principles that underpin those methodologies, customer centricity, evidence-based decision-making, empathy, prototyping, experimentation, learning, right, inspect and adapt, all of this language that comes from these schools of thought, the, the languages are basically all saying the same thing. At which point, you then as an organization have to pick and choose the, the practices that fit your ways of working. So if stand-ups work for you, terrific. If retrospectives work for you, terrific. If your, uh, if your sprints need to be three weeks instead of one week or two weeks, okay, right? Like, yeah. who, who cares? If you're focusing on the customer, if you're focusing on delivering customer, uh, value to the customer, and you're learning and you're adjusting course based on your learning, then those principles reconcile. They sort of, they sort of uh, you know, uh, flatten out the, the cracks between these processes. Yeah, I think it's um, the skills that you need are almost the ones that support continuous improvement or, or the, the knowledge that you need is more about continuous improvement and less about Scrum and or very specific ways of doing things. Um, yeah, if you, if you don't have... An idea how to do it. Take a model that's worked elsewhere. Try that. But the entire ethos of it is figure out what's working for you and inspect and adapt and refine and keep doing that. Absolutely love that. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, and I've actually lost work because of this. If, you, if you've ever seen me speak or seen any of my talks, I like to poop on safe, the scaled agile framework, <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and I do. <laughs> uh, but, but look... And I, I have lost work because of this. There was a client once who was like, hey, come teach us how to do lean UX and safe. And then they watched my talk and they're like, never mind. <laughs> don't come. I was like, well, we can figure it out. But uh, wait, wait, wait. Don't go. Uh, <laughs> but no, but, but my point, but what I'm trying to say is, is this. Look, I, I poop on it because, because it, it, it says the word agile in there and I don't think it's very, a very agile practice. However, to your point, right, if you're a large organization and you're looking for a starting point, safe is fine right? Start with safe. That's terrific. And then figure out what pieces of that work for your organization and what else you could bring in or what you'll take away or what you'll modify to make it even better for your org. I think the challenge becomes is when people try to adhere rigidly to the recipes, 
But to your point, pick a starting point. Pick safe, pick scrum, pick XP, pick Kanban, Lean UX, Lean Startup, whatever, design thinking, and then evolve your process from there to, to be what makes sense for you. And I think that people can reconcile their discomfort to break the recipe. Everyone will be better off for it. Someday we need to get a safe proponent to come on the podcast for, <laughs> to have a bit of a debate about it. There's lots of consultants out there. You, you could find them. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so uh, going back to training, you know, I, I, I do training as well, and I'm always of two minds about advising people on how to do training and going for certifications. And you do a lot of training, uh, both corporate and individual. You do a certified Scrum product owner course. You were telling us earlier about another course that you're uh, just, I think you're just about to launch. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the value of training? How do you advise people to make the best use of it? Yep. So my, my point of view on this has shifted um, over the years because when I started doing training, I um, – What's the word I'm looking for? I was naive. <laughs> that's, the, that's the truth. I, I was naive and I was um, very hopeful that a workshop would be transformational for an organization. Right? And the reality is that in a day or two or even five, right? because I've done those five-day workshops as well, you're not going to transform an organization. What you're going to create is inspiration and awareness and maybe some practice in a new way of working. At the end of the day, it's up to the organization to figure out whether or not they're going to invest in maintaining the momentum that comes out of these trainings and these workshops. And so to me, it's, so to me, it's inspiration, awareness, and, and, and practice that comes from, from these trainings. And that's, and that's what I sell, and I'm upfront about that. You know, that's where coaching – so coaching comes in really nicely mm. as a follow-on to these trainings to help maintain the momentum coming out of there. So to me, that, that's been one of the key learnings over the years. Now, when it comes to certification, certification is something that, um, you know, my background is in UX design. And if you know the UX design community, there is um, sort of a general distaste for certification in the UX community. There's never really been a UX uh, certification that anyone's really respected. Um, it's always been a question of, well, who will certify the certifiers, right? That, that kind of thing. Um, and I come from that background. I come from you know, years and years and years of, of working in that space and in that community. Um, and so what's interesting to me is two things. It's a question of the, the rigor that the organization has gone to to create the training. I think that's worthy or not of certification. And I think it's the, the, the people who are teaching the class, frankly, who are um, perhaps you know, worthy of a certification based on who's actually teaching the class. So, for example, the CSPO, the Certified Scrum Product Owner course that I teach with Jeff Patton, Jeff Patton is the certifier there, right? I, he, he's the one who has the power to certify. Um, I don't, actually, in, in that particular case. Um, to learn from Jeff is worth every minute that you spend in a room with that guy, Right? He is not only um, an amazing product manager and he's a designer and, 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 a, and just a kind of a, a thought leader on this, but he's got the experience to prove for it. So if you're learning from Jeff, you've earned that certification, in my, in my opinion, right? What you do with it is up to you. Um, conversely, I, start, I, launched, I helped co-create a course, again, with Josh Seiden. I do a lot with Josh Seiden. He's kind of everywhere. <laughs> uh, I do like the guy. Um, <laughs> but Josh Side and I and Scrum.org, another certification organization, we built a class called Professional Scrum with UX, 
which is a, certifi- a certification course that is designed to help teams understand how to integrate user experience and design into Scrum in a Scrum Guide compliant way and in a way that satisfies the needs of UX designers and interaction designers and so forth. I think that the rigor that we went through to create that class, we spent a year putting it together and we spent six months testing that class. Um, and, then, and then the level of effort that it takes to achieve that particular certification is worthy of that certification. So you've got um, you know, a combined 45 years of experience between Josh and myself that went into that class, plus the scrum.org folks experience, and they're super smart guys who worked with us. Um, you've got um, a level, uh, you've got 18 months worth of work that we put in to not only create the class, but test it and learn from it and iterate. And then you don't just get the certification for taking the course. You've got to pass a test. And that test is a test that we wrote, right? And we, we believe in that. So I think that the quality of the instructor and the quality of the organization will make a certification more valuable Oh, you, because you took it from that person. People have asked me about uh, the, the certification, about getting a CSPO. And I've always told them as a hiring manager, that's a day or two days, and I don't really care. On the other hand, I've said, you know, knowing you and knowing Jeff Patton, if you take the class with them, there's huge value in it regardless of the piece of paper that you get at the end of it. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's never, it's never going to replace day-to-day practice, right? I mean, that's, that's by far the most value. Experience is by far way more valuable than any certification or training. However, I do believe that in certain situations there is value. I think there's a real gap between uh, training that's available and just day-to-day work, like you say, in, in practice. Um, something that we've been trying to explore in Product Tank in Bristol is how do we get together to practice together? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you want to do like user story mapping or something like that, um, how, you know, can we just get together and all user story map together? But yeah, I've not done any product training myself. And what I have done, I've always told people, take one or maybe two things away from this, practice it, really get good at that, and then work on the next thing, and then work on the next thing. Don't try and come away from one or two days' worth of training and change everything about the way you work. And, yeah, this is what you were talking about earlier. Following up with coaching and further development is seems to be critical. So you're clearly very experienced at building products and building teams that mm. build products. Um, what's stopped you from building a product yourself and becoming uber successful? Or I guess Sense and Respond is a product. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. You know, it, it, it's something I've struggled with because as, as my career shifted from doing design and product work to teaching design and product work, I felt my, my design skills atrophying. Right. And I and I and I felt, you know, and I, and I asked some people about it, people who had been uh, around longer than me and people who had done kind of similar transitions. They, and they said, look, you can always go back and do design. Right. So you can always kind of re, re, rekindle those skills. But look, this this is this is the story I tell myself and how I sleep better <laughs> at night. So um, so I do build products and I do design those. So, so I design and build classes. I design and build curriculums. Um, I I 
manage my business, which is, you know, it's, it's a significant business. It's only, you know, it's, it's one person, it's a business of one. You know, I, I'm always looking to iterate. I'm always running experiments. In fact, I just launched an experiment this week, a kind of a new way to deliver my, my products, live online learning, right? Something that I'm trying to, to do and evolve my product and do. We'll see if it works, right? I don't know. Um, but to me, I, I always feel like I can use the, the material to evolve what I do and how I do it. And I do believe I've built, I've built a product. I've built, I've built the, the books. I've built the publishing press. I mean, not by myself, obviously. Um, and the business that I have today is built exactly on these, on these learnings and these practices. And so while it's not an app or a system, yeah. um, it's still a, it's a service really more than, more than anything. And, and it continues to, you know, knock on wood, do well. So... We'll keep going. <laughs> That's something Teresa Torres has been really articulate about. She's uh, dealt with a lot of the same things, but she she talks really well about how she approaches her life and her business. And it sounds like you're going through much the same approach. Absolutely, and and she continues to inspire me. By the way, I mean, I am. Uh, she's you know the, the way that she runs her business is something I aspire to. Uh, and in fact, I have, a, I have a call scheduled with her in the near future here to, to, to ask her a thousand questions about how she runs her business because I'm, I'm super, super impressed by her. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us on the podcast. It's been really lovely having you. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, this was terrific. Thanks. It was a fantastic conversation. Cool. Hey, Lily, I've got a question for you. Do we even need to do these outros? Hasn't everyone skipped to the next podcast as soon as the interview ends? Well, I have the hypothesis that people like them, but how can we be sure? Um, I've got it. Let's run an experiment. Ooh, I like where you're going with this. Hey, you know how our producer Emily was talking about getting us some product experience stickers? Let's use those as an incentive. Okay, yeah. So this is how it's going to work. We need to know if you, A, are even listening to this part, and B, like the outros. So please tell us, tweet us at MTPPod, and let us know if we should keep recording these little bits after the interview. Yeah, tag us and let us know if you listen to this, if you like it, if you don't like it, if what we should change, what we should keep. And if the stickers ever get made, hint, hint, Emily, uh, we'll send stickers to the first 10 people that respond, if, you know. And people respond, is anyone listening to this? Is that anyone out there? <laughs> okay, stop that. Come on, people. Prove me right. Get tweeting. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Our hosts are me, that's Lily Smith, and Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Emily is ours alone, but we're happy to share Luke if you need someone to edit your own podcast. Hey, you can't share him too much. He's my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW. That's P-A-U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg and plays bass in the band for letting us use the music. And sign up for your local Product Tank, a regular meetup in over 185 cities worldwide. There's probably one someone near you. And if there's not, you can start one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. Here's Global Coordinator Mark Abraham to tell you more about it. Product Tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world. 
driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips. Mm-hmm.